All right, so two weeks ago we talked about chapter, we started chapter 9. I'm going to do a quick recap and work through everything because it's been two weeks and then some of you may not have been here. Uh, we're talking about correlating Scripture with Scripture, comparing Scripture uh, as we seek to understand what Scripture teaches. So we talked about that interpretive correlation, which is comparing Scripture with Scripture so we can inform the interpretation of a particular text uh, on other related texts. So it's pursuing and interpreting the parts in light of the whole. So we're trying to look at the whole of Scripture and compare different parts. Uh, and we talked about how um, relationships in which texts text may correspond. There's different ways. And we talked about uh, the three areas we're trying to observe those correspondence is history, literature, and theology. Okay, Scripture interpreting Scripture. Uh, so Scripture is the best commentary for Scripture, as you see there at the end of that quote. Uh, we want to make sure that we're correlating Scripture in a valid way, not just trying to, well, this sounds like this, and so this must be a connection. So we looked at Job 23.10, James 1.12, 1 Peter 1.6-7. They all seem to be talking about uh, being refined like gold, and so there can be a false correlation between Job and then James and Peter, and they're not really talking about the same thing. So we want to do that so that we safeguard against wrong interpretation, but also so that we're pursuing proper interpretation. So that's why we want to make sure we're properly looking at uh, the, the proper correlation, okay? Connecting the dots, we talked about that and how they fit in the realms of history, literature, and theology. And then we looked at uh, the end of our time together a couple weeks ago. We really spent time looking at Jeremiah 24 and Jeremiah 29 and seeing how they were connected in those three realms, okay? We talked about how there was a historical connection between the two because uh, there's historical markers. It's the same time period, the same group of people as we looked at the introductions of both those chapters. There was a literary connection. Both of them had that restoration language and destruction language. So we looked at those parallel passages. And then there was a connection theologically, a lot of language about the new covenant and the old covenant in those passages, okay? I think that is pretty much where we left off. We talked about how, again, typically we're going to find connections in those three realms, history, literature, theology, and that's kind of where we're picking up today. We're going to look at some different examples of these from various passages, okay? So the first thing we're going to talk about today is correlating historical content. So again, these three realms, history, literature, theology, the first one we're going to focus on, correlating historical content, Okay? I think some of these quotes are in your notes, uh, but they say in the book, in the realm of biblical history, most connections between related passages involve narrative sequencing, which means, so this happened and then this happened, okay? So it's demonstrating in a narrative sense, here's the progression of what happened. There's also narrative causal in inference, this happened because of that, okay? Or parallel passages where two texts describing the same approximate event. So there's three types of connections we're going to think of in history. Um, sequencing and casual inference usually happen in close proximity in the passage. So usually as you're studying a passage, it's going to tell you this happened and then this happened or this happened because this happened, that kind of thing. But when it comes to parallel history, so parallel accounts, these can take place in different books of the Bible. So some examples of this, and I can't remember if I put this in the notes or not. But uh, Samuel and Kings with Chronicles, there's a lot of overlapping accounts of the same historical event. 
There's some with Ezra and Nehemiah. There's Old Testament prophetic books that match up with narrative books where you're seeing uh, the history of an event that happened, and then you're seeing prophecy in the midst of that event happening. Um, and then, of course, probably the most common, the most one we're probably most familiar with are the gospel accounts, especially when it comes to what we call the synoptic gospels. What, who knows what the synoptic gospels are? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call them synoptic. They're very close, closely related. John is a little bit different, but there's even some overlap, as we're going to see, between John and some of the synoptic gospel accounts, okay? So you see these accounts, uh, and then even the New Testament epistles with the book of Acts. You'll see some events in Acts, and then sometimes in the epistles you can line them up with where they happen historically, okay? So we want to make those connections so that we can better understand the passage, okay? The first example we're going to look at of this is gospel accounts. So uh, I did this two weeks ago. I'm going to have this side of the room turn to Mark 6, 35 to 44. So that first verse on the screen. This side, you're going to turn to John 6, 1 through 13. Okay? So this is the, the account of the feeding of the 5,000. And so I want us to read both of these accounts, and we're going to see, uh, be looking for where do we see similarities in these accounts? And where do we see maybe some differences? Not that there's contradiction, but there's maybe more detail given by one author that the other left out, okay? So this side, Mark 6, 35 to 44. This side, John 6, 1 through 13. So would anybody on this room read those verses for me, Mark 6, 35 to 44? And as they're reading this, this side, you be looking at your account, see if there's things that uh, match up or things that Mark mentions that John doesn't, or John mentions that Mark doesn't, okay? Somebody read that, Mark 6, 35 to 44. Okay, so now if someone will read John 6, 1 through 13 on this side. And again, look for similarities or differences.
Okay, so let's start with what, what things did you see that are mentioned in both passages? Anybody catch any of these? Okay, very similar account. What are some of the details that are exactly the same? Five loaves and two fish is mentioned in both, right? What else? They fed them, yeah. Did, did it say how much the price was for, or well, when the disciples were asking uh, about the amount that they'd have to spend to feed everybody, was that the same? It was. Uh, I think, uh, what version do you have? <laughs> But it said it said pennyworth, okay. So pennyworth, denarii, denarii is is really the same thing. But it's two hundred. Uh, I think I think it was a, a day's wage for a common laborer. So the same amount of money is mentioned. Um, both mentioned twelve baskets being filled. Both mentioned that there were five thousand uh, men who ate. Both mentioned sitting in the grass. Uh, Jesus prayed before distributing the food. Gave a blessing. Okay. So, yeah, those are things to be looking for, and we see those details match up. We know this is the same exact account. Um, What are some things that maybe you noticed one author mentioned that the other didn't? Not that there's any contradiction, but there's more detail given by some, uh, one of the authors, than, than another, potentially. Okay, yeah, Mark just um, mentions the disciples, right? And then John mentions... Um, that it was Philip and Andrew. Um, I think that's the right way around. Right? Didn't John? John was the one I think that mentioned them specifically by name. Uh, and whereas Mark just says disciples in general. So that's a good difference to notice. What else? Okay. Okay. Okay, very good. What else? Let me give you a few to be thinking through. Um, Mark tells us that the grass is green. Very minute detail, but John doesn't mention, he says there's lots of grass, and he mentions that it's before the Passover, so John gives us that detail that it's right before the Passover, which would be springtime, which would make sense that the grass would be green, okay? Jesus had people sit in groups of 150, okay? Mark tells us that, doesn't tell us that in John, that he specifically had them sit in those groups um, of 150. I think John mentions that has them sit in groups, but not the specific number. Um, And Mark also mentions that before Jesus gave that blessing, he looked to heaven and blessed the food, okay? So those are some differences, some details that Mark mentions, and then John mentions, again, like we said, Philip and Andrew by name, that it took place near the Passover. And here's a question. Does Mark, or which, I'll say it this way. One of them mentions that there, it was a boy who provided the five loaves and the two fish. Did you guys catch that? One did and one didn't. Which one did and which one didn't? Okay. Um, yes, John mentions that the five loaves and two fish was 
given by a boy. The other one just says they went around and searched and found five loaves, two fish, okay? So just some details as we look at parallel accounts like that to be comparing. And if you're studying Mark, for instance, and you're seeking to understand something, wouldn't it be a benefit to look at this account? And I think this account's in all four Gospels. I think it's one of the only accounts that's in all four. And so you can understand the depth of looking at each one, seeing those similarities, seeing some differences, so you have a a better understanding of what happened historically, right? So you can better interpret the text, okay? Another example, so this would be looking at a parallel passage and trying to connect the dots in that way. But another example they give us in the book of making these connections historically is doing something we call a biographical parallel, okay? So this would be where you study a person and you study them throughout, you know, the scripture to better understand um, how this person's portrayed, how this person's described, why they're described that way, okay? Like I think of, without just look, before we go to this example, I think of um, Mary, the sister of Bethany, and how every time you see her in scripture, she's at Jesus' feet, right? It speaks to her attitude of worship. Well, the example they give us in the book is Joseph, or as we probably know him better, Barnabas, okay? So we're going to look at a couple of these passages on the screen throughout the book of Acts. And so, first of all, I think the first time he's mentioned is in Acts 4. So if you want to turn there, Acts 4, 32 to 37 is where we first see him. So this is the early church still. People are getting saved. And we see here um, in Acts 4, beginning in verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that anything, uh, any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon all, them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's the first time we see Barnabas. And what does it tell us Barnabas means? That name means? Why is he given that name Barnabas when his name is Joseph? It means son of encouragement, right? And so... The question the book poses, and this is why we're going to look at some different passages, is why is he called by the apostle son of encouragement? So when we look at this passage, why might, if we just looked at this passage, could we maybe have an idea of why he's called son of encouragement just from looking at this passage? Right, that would be pretty encouraging to see someone sell not count what they had as their own, to sell it um, and to give the money to the apostles so they could care for the needs of those around, right, of new believers, okay? So absolutely, there's others, though, that were doing this as well. So it's interesting that Barnabas is mentioned, but of course that is part of why we think he got the name Son of Encouragement. But as we study some of these other passages, what we see is a commonality, and every time he's seen, he's encouraging, okay? So turn to Acts 9, 26 to 28. Acts 9, 26 to 28. Okay, this is right after uh, 
Saul is on the road to Damascus, and he has his vision uh, from Jesus, and he's converted, and he is, uh, I think this is, yeah, after he is given sight again, and he goes, you know, he's basically going to believers, new believers, telling them that he's trusted Christ, um, and they don't believe him, right? They, they think he's just tricking them to get into their inner circle because he's a persecutor of the church. And here's where we see again uh, Barnabas on the scene. So beginning in verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly, in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Okay, so here's this again, Barnabas living up to that name, son of encouragement. He's, they just want to write Saul off. He's not a disciple. They're afraid of him. They've seen what he's done to other believers, imprisoning them, and so they just want to write him off, and here's Barnabas coming alongside and saying, no, this man's truly trusted Christ and bringing him into the fellowship. And, and really, this is the beginning of the Apostle Paul's new life as a believer. Okay? We see him again in Acts eleven twenty two to 30. Okay? So you might have to turn a page or two. Acts eleven twenty two to 30. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church uh, in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to, to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Okay, we keep going. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So here's where we really see the launching of this missionary movement of sending Barnabas and Saul out. They're going to provide this relief, but also to spread the gospel. And so... We see again Barnabas being chosen as one of these guys to go forth as an encouragement and as one who would share the gospel, okay? Uh, next time we see him is in chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, and I think these are tied together. Now, there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So again, this missionary uh, sending them out we see in these passages. So we see him as a person who would encourage, okay? The next one is Acts 15, 36 to 41. And this is another familiar part where we see um, Barnabas beginning there in verse 36. Says so they've been on they've been journeying together they've been about these these missionary activities sharing the gospel and after some days Paul said to Barnabas let us return and visit the brothers in every city 
where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So this disagreement between Barnabas and Paul is probably related to this idea of Barnabas wanting to be that encourager, wanting to be that person that comes alongside. And so he wants to come alongside John Mark, even though John Mark had abandoned them. Uh, he wants to come alongside of them and let's restore him, let's go about it. But Paul doesn't think that's wise, and so there's a sharp disagreement, and they split ways. And the Lord even uses that disagreement to allow the gospel to spread uh, as these two groups go separately. But Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4.11, and I flip over there, you can turn there if you want, but don't feel like you have to. 2 Timothy 4.11 the end of his life, Paul writes this, Luke alone is with me, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So Paul even acknowledged that restoration for Mark, and we know Mark is the one that wrote the gospel of Mark, and so we see again this encouraging attitude of Barnabas, not wanting to just write off Mark and, well, he, he left us, he abandoned us, just forget him, but seeking to come alongside of him and use him in, in missionary activity. And God used that, of course, to allow the gospel to go forth. But one of our gospel accounts is from Mark, who likely gathered all those eyewitness accounts as he wrote that account. So we see this historical aspect of correlating parallel passages, but also in a biographical sense, looking at a character in Scripture, studying their life, seeing where they're mentioned, to better understand... Um, you know, some of these passages, if we're studying alone, it's helpful to know some of these other texts to better understand and, and explain what's going on in the text we may be studying, okay? A uh, quote from the book, Connecting the dots between these narratives not only provides a clear look at the role of encouragement in God's program of expanding the church, certainly a model for application, but it also informs the reader as to why Joseph became known as the son of encouragement in the first place, Okay. So we can benefit from making these connections biblically in a historical realm. Okay, next correlating literary content. Okay, um, so we need to be careful as we're studying, as we're comparing. This is where we're comparing words and phrases in Scripture, and as we do this, we want to be careful to primarily focus on the Greek and the Hebrew, the original languages. Okay. Not just, okay, this English word's used here and, and it's used here. They might be two different Greek or Hebrew words, right? Now, there can be benefit in doing that, okay? But we have to be cautious, all right? So as we're studying English words, we don't want to read too much into it. We want to seek to understand what is the original word. Is it the same? Is it different? Um, how are those words maybe similar in the original languages? But our main focus would be the Greek and the Hebrew when we're seeking to compare literary content, Okay? So a quote from the book, doing word studies essentially is a matter of ascertaining what a word can mean through correlation. This is semantic range, okay? What can a word mean? As you study that Hebrew or Greek word, okay, here it's translated as this, here it's translated as this. It can mean, a, you know, here's the semantic range of what it can mean. 
But then we're going to discern what a word does mean via the context. Okay, so what can the word mean? And now let's look at the context. What does it mean in this context? Does this make sense? An example that we're going to look at is Colossians 1.15. Okay? Um, Colossians 1.15, I'll turn over there. If you want to, you can as well. Colossians 1.15 says about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Okay, so the word we're looking at is firstborn. What does that mean? The firstborn of all creation because um, Jehovah's Witnesses, I think probably even Mormons, other false belief systems will say, well, this means that Jesus was the first created being, okay, and then he created everything else. So he's lesser than God. He's like a, a demigod. He's less than God. He's created everything else, but he's the firstborn He's the first thing that God created, and then through Jesus, everything else was created, okay? So is that what this word means, okay? So it starts with, well, let's look at some other passages and determine what this word can mean, okay? So does it always mean firstborn? It can actually be translated a couple different ways. The, the Greek word is, and I think I have this in your notes, and I'm probably going to butcher it, prototokos, okay? It can mean first in order of time like firstborn, first created, or it can mean first in rank. Look at Colossians 1.18, just a few verses down, we see that same word. Jesus is the head of the body, the church, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that word's mentioned again, it's the same Greek word. And we know that Jesus was not the first historically to rise from the dead, right? There are other accounts, even Lazarus in Jesus' ministry rose from the dead, so it's not saying that he's the first person to, to ever rise from the dead. It could be saying he's the first to ever rise with a glorified body, okay? Um, but we see a little bit of context here and see what this word can mean, firstborn from the dead, okay? If we study this word firstborn and we're looking at the English word but seeking to try to find comparable words in the Hebrew, we can look at different passages in the Old Testament. In Exodus 4.22, Israel, so this is Jacob, is described as God's firstborn son. But Jacob was not the firstborn of Isaac's sons. We know that he was after Esau. And nor was the nation of Israel. Maybe you say, well, he's not talking about Jacob. He's talking about the nation of Israel. Well, the nation of Israel is not the first nation to ever exist on the planet either. So here it's not referring to the very first. It's referring to that rank, that priority. This is God's chosen people. This is who God chose to uh, have his people, this line of Jacob, uh, to come through. Jeremiah 31, 9, Ephraim is called God's firstborn, but he's not, he was not Joseph's firstborn son. Ephraim was Joseph's, or uh, Manasseh was Joseph's firstborn son. Ephraim was second. So here again, we see this word doesn't necessarily mean first in order, but first in rank. David is called in Psalm 86, 27, my firstborn. But as we know, he's the youngest of Jesse's sons. So as we see some of these other passages, we know there are passages where firstborn is talking about they were the first in uh, birth order. But other times we can see, and this is, again, gathering that semantic range. What can this word mean? Well, it can mean first in order. It can mean first in rank, right? So as we look at the context or look at some of this uh, semantic range, now we come back to the context of Colossians 1. 
And as we study this context, what would, how would we then determine the meaning of what this word? Is it first in order or first in rank? What do you think? As we come back to Colossians 1, 15 through uh, 18, or even probably verse 20, what would the context lean towards? First in order or first in rank? First in rank, right? Absolutely. As you look at this, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in everything he might be preeminent. So the context is just exalting Jesus. He's preeminent. He's the head of the body. He's first overall creation and rank. He's first born from the dead and that he's the, the most important person to rise from the dead and to, uh, because he's, he rises with that glorified body, which through faith we get to receive uh, by faith in what he's done. So we see the context of this really is, pushes us to say this is first not in order. This is not some statement that Paul's trying to make to the Colossian believers that Jesus was the first created being. This is Paul saying Jesus is preeminent, right, as we look at the context. So again, it starts by what's the, what can this word mean, and then look at the context, what does it mean in this context, okay? Any questions about this idea of word use throughout Scripture? All right, the next idea of correlating literary concept would be grammatical and literary style. So flip back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis 3 be helpful to see these two verses together. Genesis 3.16 and Genesis 4.7. So if you're lucky, like I am, they're on the same page. All right? So in Genesis 3, we see the fall of man. And here in verse 16, God is telling the woman the consequences of the fall. It says, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain... In childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. And then here's the main phrase we're looking at. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Who has a different um, translation of that? Anybody have a different version of verse 16, that second part? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So... The ESV, and again, this is an example where you see the, the, those who are translating Scripture making an interpretive decision. Uh, here in the ESV, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Yeah, so that, what, so your, but yours says four. Okay. Okay. Right, and mine says, or shall be toward. And so this is where there's question. Is, is God saying to the woman, um, you're going to desire to be intimate with your husband and multiply, and there's even going to be pain in childbirth, but despite that pain in childbirth, you're still going to have this desire for your husband? Or is he saying, your desire is going to be to usurp your husband's authority, but he's going to rule over you, okay? So that's the question we're thinking about. But look at Genesis 4, 7, and this sheds light on how to properly interpret Genesis three sixteen. 
because this is a very similar grammatical style, okay? Genesis 4-7. This is after Cain is killed, or this is before Cain's killed Abel, but uh, this is after his offerings rejected, okay? So this is God's words to Cain in verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin, and this is the main phrase that's similar, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So even in the English, you see the very similar style between chapter 3, verse 16, and chapter 4, verse 7, okay? Um, The book says the language and syntax are almost identical between the two, and given the textual proximity, there is likely intentional symmetry between the statements. The point may be as follows. Just as sin struggles for authority in the fallen heart of humankind, so the woman struggles with her husband for authority in marriage, okay? So when we understand that and we, we connect these grammatically, grammatical and literary styles, we see, really it seems to be saying, and I think the way the ESV translated, translates it, is because of the fall, God has established prior to the fall that the order is to be the man, not that there's, um, there's not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Of course, they're the same as far as, their status before God, but they have different roles, and God's given the man to be in authority over the woman, right? We see this throughout the New Testament as well. And so it seems to say because of the fall, though, the woman's going to desire to have that role of authority, but God still desires the husband to rule over the woman, okay? Just like sin desires to have that role of authority in our life, but we've got to be the ones to rule over it and not let it rule in our life, okay? Any questions about that? Um, I will say, and I think I put this in the notes, we probably won't spend time on it, but the book just asks the questions. How would maybe reading these passages help us if we were studying 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15? And this is where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain silent. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So understanding, connecting those passages together to have a proper uh, interpretation of Genesis 3.16 helps us to understand what Paul's saying in 1 Timothy, that this is connected to God's created order, and that's why we don't believe women should have that role as a pastor. Okay? It's not that they're not equal uh, in standing before God, but God's given distinct roles and his desires for men to be that role of authority in the home and in the church, okay? So just a a quick note there, all right? Let's quickly move, because we're running out of time, uh, correlating theological content. So we talked about history, literature. This is theology. Theological relationships often do inform the interpretation of individual texts by drawing on the inferred relationships between or within theological themes and motifs. Interpretive insight is achieved, okay? So I'm going to fly through this, but basically... The idea here is in Genesis 1.27, it talks about that man was created in the image of God. And as we read that, we have to ask the question, what does that mean? In what way is mankind created in the image of God? Does that mean that God has a body, that he has a head, two arms, two hands, two legs, two feet? You know, does he have a body like us? And so we're creating that physical image of God. And so as we ask that question... And we correlate scripture and look at this theological idea of what is God like. 
we can have a better understanding of what that image is referring to. Colossians 3.10, it says, And have put on the new self. It's talking about our redemption in Christ. We've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And the context of Colossians 3 would suggest it's not talking about physical transformation, but a spiritual transformation. When we trust Christ, we've put on that spiritual nature. We're able to be renewed into the image of our creator. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Is, the, is that saying that as believers, once we trust Christ, we're given a new physical body? No, right? It's talking about spiritual, a new spiritual nature. We're a new creation in that way, okay? So as we look at the context of that, we look back to Genesis 127, we can say with confidence that it's talking about the fact that we're created in God's image in a spiritual sense, right? Then when we look at passages like John 4.24, which says that God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship in spirit and truth, and then Luke 24.39, where Jesus says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me and see for the spirit. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. As we correlate this theological idea of God's image and what God's like, looking at these various passages, we can say with confidence, God does not have a body, right? He's a spirit. Of course, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, did take on an earthly body. And that's the point of Luke 24. But this is the idea of tracing that theological idea throughout Scripture getting a big picture view so we can understand the parts better, okay? Any questions? I know, as always, it's a lot of information. This, the quote I put on the screen is the conclusion is very small, and I'm not going to read it, but basically this is to say, we say this throughout every chapter because sometimes this can be pretty in-depth and, and it can be kind of overwhelming for some, but the point is this. Um, you're going to grow in your understanding of connecting the dots, as you continue to study the Bible. So don't say, well, this is way over my head. I'll never be able to understand this and just quit altogether. Just take steps, understand where you are uh, in your study of the Bible and grow in that. And as you grow and understand different passages, you'll start to make those connections more quickly, maybe connections you didn't see before. So, so persevere, keep growing in that study. And they make a note at the end of the book, for those who are maybe new to, to Bible study or where this maybe seems over your head, a great tool is just a good study Bible, because a good study Bible is going to give you cross-references. It's going to give you notes in the uh, study portion, the commentary portion. If there's a connection to be made somewhere that you wouldn't have known about, it's going to usually have it there if it's pertinent. So don't be discouraged throughout the study. Um, this is meant, as we said in the very beginning, the, the waters are deep, but they're right there at our face, okay? So you can lap up some water, you can dive down deep. Uh, it's accept, God's word is accessible to even those who are, you know, have little understanding, but it's also so deep that we can never reach the bottoms of it. Okay. So just a note as we wrap up this chapter. Okay. All right. Let's close in prayer and then we'll move on to our worship service.